There is a greater depth and availability of services with what you can do with digital payment in China than you can in the West. And that is the fundamental difference between the two. This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and I'm Wahid. My name is Rich Turin, and I'm the author of Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution. China's been advancing in a very disciplined way on a few different fronts, and fintech is one of them. On this episode, we'll try to understand China's fintech infrastructure from its first principles and also the crux of their plan for the future. What was it that makes Chinese fintech so special? And the answer is very clear. In 2014, the People's Bank of China reached out and worked with both two of the biggest big tech companies in China at the time, Tencent, the parent of WeChat, and of course, Alibaba, the parent of Ant Group, which in turn owns Alipay. What you had was a very interesting scenario. You had the first private banking licenses issued to WeChat companies or subsidiaries of Tencent. They gave big tech banking licenses to compete with their own state-owned banks. And that's sort of unheard of. They have 1.4 billion people. They had a high level of unbanked population in keeping with an overall government plan to bring digital into society. They said, look, we can make digital banks and that will probably help. Let's see what happens. And the rest is history. It was a tremendously successful product. We also talk about the central bank digital currency, CBDCs, that China plans to launch. We also talk about Russia and China's plans to replace the SWIFT, which is the main platform for transferring money around the world. CBDC, why should we care? Because it fundamentally changes the nature of money. And it uses the cryptocurrency revolution technology as the basis of that. And that's fundamentally different because what it does is it allows governments and potentially companies to who do not agree with sanctions and bans and blocks on SWIFT to actually send money SWIFT be damned. And that's the reality. I understand that this is controversial. So in the current world we're living in, let's talk Russia and China. What Russia could do would be send an email to China with money, rubles in it. And what China could do is send an email back and say, here's your RMB, spend it how you want. It's an oversimplification, but it brings money transfer to email easy style transfer and nobody knows about it. And it's all anonymous. That and much, much more coming right up on this episode. Rich, thanks a lot for joining the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a great pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Wahid. The pleasure is absolutely mine. I'm happy to be here. Brilliant. So let's get right into it. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself, who you are, what you're about, how you got into the Chinese fintech space and ended up writing a book? <laughs> sure. You know, like a lot of things in life, the path is never a straight line. So I started my career <laughs> 18 years. I was an investment banker and I was the kind of investment investment banker who designed fixed income products. It was a combination of math, mm -hmm. computers, and lots of innovation. And basically that industry went away after the global financial crisis in 2008. And by 2010, mm -hmm. I was tired of being in New York City. And I said, well, where shall I go? I had been to China five, six years earlier, I guess it would have been 2003. And I said, mm -hmm. China's a great place to be. So I literally got a couple of duffel bags and moved. And that's how I ended up in China. 
China. I'm very grateful because China was very good to me. It allowed me to teach at an at Holt International School for Business, the MBA program. I then eventually got right, picked up right. by IBM, where I headed their risk management and eventually their fintech operations. So China has been tremendously generous to me, and I am very grateful. But the thing that your audience needs to understand is that how I got into writing books and why fintech and mm-hmm. why digital currency is that my life has been spent at this intersection of money, code, and mathematics. And they all come together mm-hmm. when we look at central bank digital currency. And that's what fundamentally inspired me to write this. That's pretty cool, actually. And you know what? You say the whole business school, just go back to your life. I actually did participate in the whole prize and one of the regional finals as well. You know, I think it was organized by the whole business school. <laughs> yes, it was. The, so, whole, the whole prize is, yeah. a, is a big deal. I wasn't on the yeah. I wasn't on the committee for that, but I, I certainly know of yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly a couple of years ago, it really took things off with fire. But that's amazing, though. So all the way from the West, living in the East, how's it been like? Like, what has been the kind of biggest changes that you would see in Chinese society versus, you know, American society? Oh, that's such a big question. All right. So look, I'm going to break it down into two obvious bits. And the first one is that living in the East, living in China now for 12 years has fundamentally changed my perspective on how you view the world and how you Mm. view Asia's role in that world. When you live in New York City and when you're a banker, you see Mm. the U.S. and U.S. capital markets as being centric to the planet. Yeah, it just revolves around you. Yeah, and I was an international banker, so I I flew around a lot, you know, so I was certainly not a domestic U.S. guy, so I got that other places were important. But after you live in China for 12 years, it fundamentally changes how you view things. And, you know, I hate to say it, but it changes how you view the news and how you view what acceptable is or what is unacceptable. And these are big topics right now when we talk about, look, we're in the middle of a war right now. So these are, you know, these are real topics. The second obvious thing, and look, I'm saying this one because it focuses on my book. Mm -hmm. I was privileged to come to China at a time when it went from being a place where, this is no joke, when I had to pay a security deposit for an apartment, I had a back pack with a brick of money mm-hmm. in it that I had to go to the bank and you get these pink bricks because the RMB is sort of yeah. pinkish red and you know you, you literally yeah. boom put them on the table to pay for your security deposit. Yeah and this was in early 2010s? Yes, this or is 2010. 20- so you know I went from yeah. that to yeah. you know every month paying every bill with boop, you know, I just push the button and WeChat or Alipay, mm-hmm. depending on which bill is on what system, done. Mm-hmm. Or auto, or actually most of them are auto pay, but I still pay my rent yeah. or security deposit with just the push of a button. So we went mm-hmm. fundamentally cashless during that period and I lived to see it. And, you know, for a guy who's a mm-hmm. banker, going cashless mm-hmm. was really cool. And it fundamentally, that's what made me write my book because I said, look, this is a good thing and yeah. the West is falling behind. I didn't write it because I'm... Yeah such a big cheerleader for China, which on yeah. digital payment I am, I admit, but I wrote it because mm-hmm. it's fundamentally good for people. And when I went to the West, I felt that they were falling further and further behind. 
then that's yeah and, and let's dig into sure. that a bit what do you mean by that exactly tell us i mean because cashless right i mean we've been using like debit and credit cards for a while i know that different places have adopted different rates what's so remarkable about being cashless and why do you say the west is falling behind sure let's just look at what the west has the west has versions mm -hmm. of apple pay it has google pay and it has credit cards where you tap and pay what the west does not have is a unified ecosystem of payment a wechat pay or an alipay which is a super app but just as important is a full range of services that you can use your digital payment on in other words let me just put it this way when you think of apple pay and google pay you think about buying coffee or maybe some bigger transactions you don't think about i'm going to invest with it i'm going to buy insurance with it i'm going to pay all my bills well some mm. bills bill pays maybe that's that's pretty common now i guess but there is a greater depth and availability of services with what you can do with digital payment in china than you can in the west and that is the that is a fundamental difference between the two the ecosystem, this 360 degree lifestyle platform, and so mm -hmm. many different services which are switched over to digital that allow us to access them. And that's all mm -hmm. because of WeChat and Alipay's, ready for it, free yeah. or almost free payment system. As far as you and the, you and me, the user, retail users mm -hmm. are concerned, I can send you payment free. And when I pay somebody, it's all free to me. There's a tiny, tiny vendor fee of, you know, mm -hmm. less. 0.1%, yeah, it's like point, yeah. point 0.1 to 0.6%, depending on yeah. how it is. But that's a long way away from three to five or six percent mm -hmm. for MasterCard or Visa or American Express in the West. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of quite remarkable to me. I didn't, actually didn't know this. The Square charges you like 2.6% or something like that versus Alipay and WeChat's like negligible amounts, 0.1%. So how do you think they make it almost like free compared to Square and other kind of payment? What they were able able to do fundamentally is to sort of rewire the payment system. Mm -hmm. And they were mm -hmm. able to basically take the debit cards. So, okay, let's go back to 2014 when WeChat Pay and Alipay launched. Mm -hmm. And what they fundamentally did was they took people's debit card, negotiated with the banks for their super high volume next to free rate. In other words, if you're a local shop and you have to mm -hmm. pay 2% for, you know, for a credit card, transaction and you say, well, I'm Ollie, the newly formed Alipay, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, you know, you get different rate out of them. Mm -hmm. So what they were essentially yeah. able to do was to repurpose the debit card payment system and through the app to make access to it essentially free. And free was in part because Alipay could make money. They had some charges to pay to the debit card companies, mm -hmm. but they said, well, we don't care about those charges because at the time it's changed now, but at least in the beginning, Alipay would act a little more like a bank and keep a, sit on a large pile of money that they could make money on. Mm -hmm. So right, that's right. one of the ways they got free. And then eventually the laws changed, but I don't want to get into that. I think what was quite interesting to me was to find out that Alipay and WeChat Pay, I believe you wrote that they have banking licenses. Yes. You know, I mean, I wouldn't expect Google to 
have a banking license. So that's so fascinating. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, look, so people ask, what was the secret sauce? What was it that makes Chinese fintech so special? Mm -hmm. And the answer is very clear. In 2014, the People's Bank of China reached out and worked with both two of the biggest big tech companies in China at the time, Tencent, which mm -hmm. is the parent of WeChat, and of course, Alibaba, the parent of Ant Group, which in turn owns Alipay. So what you had was a very interesting scenario. You had the first private banking licenses issued to WeChat companies or, or subsidiaries of Tencent, and of course, to mm -hmm. subsidiaries of Alibaba, knowing, and the People's Bank of China issued these licenses, knowing full well that it would have an impact on state-owned bank profitability. So they mm -hmm. gave them licenses to compete. They gave big tech banking licenses to compete with their own state-owned bank. And that's sort of unheard of. Mm -hmm. It would be hard to imagine the Federal Reserve in the United States to say, hey, incumbent yeah. banks, we're going to give you some more in competition. You're going to be happy about it. And you know, the, the banks, the incumbents weren't necessarily happy about it in China, but they got it. Now you say, well, why did the central bank, the People's Bank of China do that? And the answer is clear. Mm -hmm. They knew that they had reached the limit of what they could achieve with a branch and brick and mortar banking system. They have 1.4 billion people. They had a high level of unbanked population in keeping with an overall government plan to bring digital into society. They said, look, we can mm -hmm. make digital banks and that will probably help. Let's see what happens. And mm -hmm. the rest is history. It went, it was a tremendously successful product. Yeah. And this is, I guess, where you need a bit of craft on the policy end, especially given your kind of competition's regulator, right? Having the appetite to actually disrupt and let the disruption of retail banks occur. I wonder if that has kind of changed since then in a way that we now see a clampdown on big tech, both in the West and in the East in terms of, oh, they can't go into this, ind this industry, that industry, they're getting too big. So yeah, I'm like, what's your kind of thoughts on that? Sure. Basically? Let's talk specifically about fintech, mm -hmm. WeChat, Alipay, mm -hmm. and the other, because it's not restrained to them, it's the other digital finance servers, which actually include TikTok or Douyin in Mandarin. So they went mm -hmm. to a, a digital format, Meituan. There's a lot of, there were a lot of digital financial services. So in essence, the real question becomes, when do you cross some threshold from being a mm -hmm. nice tech company and being an upstart mm -hmm. to being a system? systemically critical part of the financial system. Let me express that with numbers. Actual amount of payments carried by WeChat and Alipay, the two major payment platforms, and they have something like 94% of the business in China, wow. was roughly $62 trillion, which is 3.4 times the GDP of China. So what you mm -hmm. have is you've got so much money being moved by these platforms mm -hmm. that they are systemically critical organizations. They're also mm -hmm. massive data vacuum cleaners. And mm -hmm. where they had been allowed to roam free, they were clearly 
really reeled in. And I often say it was the end of the Wild West days for China's big tech, both on the fintech side and all tech companies overall. But specifically with regard to fintech, you really have to think about, do you regulate systemically critical organizations that are systemically critical mm-hmm. to your financial system the same way as you regulate an upstart tech company? And that's they started it as upstart mm-hmm. tech, and now they're these systemically critical organizations. So you need a different approach. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's bookmark that. We'll come back to kind of governments and policy a bit later. Let's talk about your book. So in terms of how you structured it, I believe... You said that there was like a version one payment systems that we talked about, Alipay and WeChat, and then we're moving on to something like CBDCs, right? So can you tell us about this whole evolution that's occurring? And yeah, what's it all about? Why should we be bothered about it? Sure. CBDC, why should we care? Because it fundamentally changes the nature of money. And it uses the cryptocurrency revolution technology as the basis of that. Let me be clear for mm-hmm. somebody who may be a crypto fan. It doesn't use blockchain per se, and I'll say that flat out, but it does use the fundamental concept that money can be turned into a token, which is a digital string that can be encoded or decoded on your phone. So it basically turns money into something that you can send digitally, just like you send email. Right. Okay. And just to define for our listeners who don't know what CBDC is, central bank digital currencies is what you're talking about, Yes, absolutely. Sorry about that, folks. Yeah. Cool, cool. So it's it's a fundamental change in the very nature of money. We're used to money as paper. We're used to money as credit cards, as checks. And we're even used to money in WeChat and Alipay. Now, here's the thing. When I make a payment on WeChat and Alipay, I'll see my bank balance, right? Well, that Mm -hmm. bank balance is not money that is retained on the phone. It's just the phone telling me, well, there's an account somewhere. And in that account, there's this balance. Mm -hmm. Now, when Mm -hmm. I look at digital currencies now, if I see that my phone and my phone currently does have all of 100 digital yuan on it, that mm-hmm. money is on the phone. It's not in an account. It's in a set right. of digital numbers that are actually, it's displayed on the phone, but the mm-hmm. string that represents that number is actually stored on the phone. So that's quite interesting architecturally, because I know how crypto works is that you've got the digital ledger, right? Which is on, on chain, blockchain. So it's not the same. No, it's not. The uh, same. There's no ledger. It's actually, you know, okay. it's really interesting. It's, well, first of all, most importantly, it's not on blockchain. In fact, I've gotten that comment a couple of times. People have said, look, you know, no, it's not really on the phone. No, in the case of China, the token mm-hmm. is actually mm-hmm on your phone and it does Mm -hmm. use a centralized, not decentralized system Mm -hmm. to hash and dehash and decrypt or encrypt the the coin, but Mm -hmm. it is not crypto-like that actually stores the coin on the chain. Okay. But why is it not blockchain? You know, what's wrong with blockchain? Nothing at all. Look, blockchain Um, is great. I love blockchain. China loves blockchain. Mm -hmm. China has the blockchain Mm -hmm. service network, which is a national and international blockchain as a service platform that they're rolling, they've rolled out to make blockchain the standard for many, many business transactions. 
okay? But mm-hmm. it suffers from one problem. China has 1.4 billion people. And when they all want to make digital payment at the same time, you need massive throughput, which means a massively fast system, tremendously fast system that can handle the number of what we call transactions per second. Right, right. Okay, cool. I think some of the chains like Ethereum and others have the L2 layers, which are faster than kind of L1. So I think we are going towards there. However, to take your point on, it's massively slow in terms of transactions. So let me help get you there. Let me help get our audience there. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin blockchain network processes somewhere around seven to 10 transactions per second. That's it. Ethereum, Mm -hmm. which is very popular, around 5,000 if my memory is right, but it's more or less that, right? Now, if we look at Mm -hmm. a typical Western credit card network, Visa or MasterCard, they'll be between 50 and 70 thousand transactions per second. Alipay Mm -hmm. during their busy peak period clocks up 500,000 transactions per second peak during their, that's, that's not the maximum of the network, that's the maximum they've recorded. It was like 520,000. It was phenomenal. 1.4 right, right, right. billion is just an inconceivable number. Now, you're right. Ethereum 2.0 can clock up three to 400,000, even more. But here's the problem. Yeah. That's not really launched yet. And for somebody who tells me Lightning Network, sure. let me tell you, Lightning Network is not a blockchain. It's a database on top of it a blockchain. Yeah. But you really can't expect, and this is the same problem the Federal Reserve in the United States noted. They also in their most recent paper are not going blockchain because they said it just can't handle the throughput. Mm -hmm. You cannot expect Mm -hmm. the central bank to issue a national currency on untested technology. Ethereum 2.0 is great. It's not actually out in full launch. So you can't expect the nation to build its currency on it. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where, and I chat a lot to kind of the Web3 folks out there. And I think one of the kind of notions and ideas that's coalescing towards is that the future is going to be like a hybrid architecture between Web2 and Web3. So you're going to have some things built, which is on chain, right? You know, maybe something related to art and NFTs and what have you. Other stuff still has to be using your normal kind of cloud databases and stuff like that, due to transaction speeds and whatever. So I think currently the kind of crypto world is trying to solve that, you know, through that kind of approach with Lightning and L2 and what have you. But yeah, I do take your point on the design decision to not go for blockchain due to the slowness of the kind of database. I want to kind of move swiftly on. I think one interesting thing I found in your book, and this is quite a revolution to me because I've seen it, I've seen QR codes, but I didn't really think much of it. But I think what you're saying is that QR codes like like massively increased adoption. It was like a design decision they took versus the NFC payment systems that we talked about in the West. So can you unpick that a bit more and then tell us about what's going on? Yeah, there? it's a QR great codes. story and I'll try to make it shorter, being mindful mm-hmm. of time. In 2014, we had two payment systems that were launched and three that were actually launched at the same time. And they were Apple mm-hmm. Pay, WeChat, and about the same time, Alipay. Mm-hmm. And they have a really important difference. When Tim Cook got on the stage in 2014, he said, hey, here's Apple Pay. And it has an NFC requirement, right? And he said, Apple Pay is really great. In order for all of you Apple fans to use Apple Pay, you must buy a new phone because no phone prior, they they launched Apple Pay and the iPhone 6 at the same time. Mm -hmm. And no iPhone prior to that had NFC built in. Near field communication. It's what allows you to take your phone and put it near point of sale 
sale reader and use Apple Pay. That's Apple and that's the US experience, right? You have to pay to play. Mm -hmm. In China, when right. they launched Alipay, they said, okay, we're going to use QR code. You can print out a QR code for almost next to nothing. You can paste it onto your the wall of your noodle shop and you can go digital without even having a smartphone because your kid can handle it for you or somebody with a smartphone. All you do is you paste this QR code mm -hmm. on the wall. And by the way, anybody who has a smartphone with a camera can use it. They mm -hmm. made it, the app especially light so that all of the low-level smartphones could use it. So it was financial right. inclusion at its best saying, use this, it's free, paste that QR code on your noodle shop wall and you'll be digital mm. versus, hi, please use Apple Pay and pay us to buy a new phone. And I'm sorry if it sounds a little sarcastic, but that's the reality. Yeah. Can't make this up. Cool, cool. That makes sense. I think you also mentioned that QR codes are less secure, right? And I think NFCs are more secure and it's got some advantages. I think since then they've worked on certain security layers, right? Authentication, biometrics, whatever for QR codes. Is that oh, correct? Yes. Look, better. the QR codes that we are using on Alipay today are far more advanced than the original ones. Some of the original codes for WeChat Pay were static. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, all of the QR codes on WeChat and Alipay are both dynamic so that they expire after a minute or so. So, you know, you can't just take a picture of the QR code. Vendor, to receive money, I think it's still static. But the point is, the security mm -hmm. on them is spectacular, and that's really important. Let's look at this. The amount of fraudulent payments on Alipay compared to card not present credit card transactions in the United States. The amount of fraud is, wait for it, 10 thousand times less on the Alipay network. And why? Because in the West, we still give this piece of plastic with numbers on it. And we think that it's secure because you have to turn the card over to get the security number off the back. <laughs> right? Right, that, right, right. That's high security. You have to turn the card over. In Alipay, you know, I've got a password. Maybe I've got a facial scan. You know, I've got much tighter security to use that than I do with, you know, this concept of a credit card. So. Incredible. And are you still using QR codes? So if you go out to a noodle shop right now, after this, are you going to be using QR codes as well? Oh, absolutely. It's wow. far more, look, in most restaurants, it's very yeah. simple. I pull up my QR code on the phone and the lady comes over with mm -hmm. a little handheld device and it go, and she puts it right near the phone. And it's the, the handheld device has a cell phone camera style thing built in and it just goes beep. Yeah. And then it prints out a little receipt and I'm done. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had that. I live in London and throw the pandemic, I started seeing those QR codes pop up on your tables, you know, and you can basically get your menu, order everything. And I think there's a company as well that got a unicorn status just out of that simple idea. So that's uh, pretty well, interesting. You know, that, that's an important uh, point yeah. because I, I mm -hmm. saw that, you know, who did it? Squared came up with QR codes for the US market and actually Facebook mm -hmm. Pay, the personal US version mm -hmm. also had QR codes. Here's the funny thing, and I'm going to say this, but this is the West copying China. China's tech. I know that a lot of people are like, well, <laughs> China copies all this tech. If you look at their fintech and their digital payment, mo 
most of you aren't using QR codes. My point is, China didn't copy this. There's no way you can accuse them of this. This is native-born technology. Okay, QR codes actually came from Japan, but the point of integrating it into a payment system is native-born to China, and the West yeah. is actually copying yeah. elements of China's fintech, and that's good. It works. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I think in the history of finance in China, it has been ahead of the West in a lot of stuff. I'm mean, the first paper money in ninth century started in China, right? First gold coins ever, 900 BC in China, right? So it's not a surprise to me just looking at the macro history of things that this all CBDC stuff is happening again. It's not surprising to me at yeah, all. The old, the, old, the old joke is that Marco Polo wrote about and when came back to Europe writing about China's paper money, and it took Europe yeah. another 600 years to adopt it. And what I yeah, always yeah. say today is that China is at least a decade ahead of the West. If you look at their fintech capability, their central bank digital currency, the amount of payment digitization, they're easily right, right. a decade ahead. And it's going to be a tough gap for the West to catch up with, given how fast China is still moving in this area. And this is just kind of one aspect. I love technology, so I think about AI and other stuff. And obviously, it's a different conversation. But coming back to CBDCs, really, tell us what are the big advantages of CBDCs compared to like Alipay? WeChat and whatever the stuff we're using right now. Why have they made a decision to make this a, like a national goal to crank out a CBDC like this? And yeah, w- what are they trying to achieve and what's what, the advantage? What makes it work? Okay, so look, there are many people who think, well, China already has WeChat and Alipay. Isn't that good enough? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, they're not good enough. They're great. And the People's Bank of China commends them for their work and says they've Mm -hmm. done a great job. But the reality is they've taken digital payment so far. And now a central bank digital currency will take digital payment further. It will go places that WeChat Pay and Alipay could never go and were not designed to go. Now, let me give you two examples. So the first sure. one is salary payments. You know, you've got a big company and they pay your employees by, you know, by direct deposit. That's not designed to be WeChat or Alipay friendly. Okay, <laughs> that's not what they were designed for. But you've got JD.com, the big digital company here, big digital Amazon mm-hmm. style company, competitor to Ant, to Alibaba. And they were actually experimenting with paying employees with digital currency. So that's a great mm-hmm. use. On the other side, you've got a large corporation paying large half million US dollar payments in digital currency to another large company. So corporate mm-hmm. payments covered with CBDC. These are examples of larger scale payments and areas where you know WeChat and Alipay were never designed to carry a half a million dollar corporate to corporate transaction, but CBDC can. The goal is to even more deeply embed digital payments into society and to go where Alipay and WeChat Pay couldn't go. What's the benefit? The biggest one that crypto users can really relate to is direct peer-to-peer transfer of cash money or digital money without a Visa, a MasterCard, mm-hmm. Alipay, WeChat, UnionPay, or a bank in between. If I want to pay you, I can pay you directly and there's nobody in between you and me. And that's a revolution. And that's the revolution mm. that the first line in Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, peer-to-peer was, yeah. transfer, disintermediation. These are right in there in the first part. So I get that crypto folks may not like central bank digital currency. I get that. They want a different 
different <laughs> world, and I'm down with that. But give central bank digital currency credit for this disintermediation role, disintermediation to take away an intermediary to make peer-to-peer -peer payment mm -hmm. real. And that's the revolution because, as you said before, you're paying Square 3%. That's a tax on everyone in society when you pay Visa or MasterCard, you know, so that's a good thing. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think one thing you mentioned, but we didn't go deep into, but I just want to make it very clear to our listeners that the fact that you have the token on the phone means that you're not reliant on the bank, right? And I think all of us know that sometimes to, in the West, to clear checks, it can take like, you know, three working days, three or five working days to get big transactions over the line, especially transactions which are international. So that's not going to be a problem anymore, right? So it's going to be like P2P lightning fast it's, right it's away, light, device to device. It's, it's lightning and that goes away. Now let's talk about the next really important thing for China, financial mm -hmm. inclusion. By tokenizing right, okay. and putting the money, as I say, the money is on the phone. You don't actually have to have a phone. You can have a small credit card-like device and it has a little display that shows you the numbers and maybe a few little, little teeny keypad on it right? And that can be used to store digital yuan or China's digital currency. And it doesn't need any network to receive payment or mm -hmm. make payment, meaning that China mm -hmm. has a massive rural population. They live in remote areas where they don't have cell phone signals, or they mm -hmm. are poor people who simply do not own smartphones. So they now will have the ability to have financial inclusion through these little digital cards. And remember, this is all trial. Mm -hmm. China has not launched officially across the nation its digital currency, but that's what's coming. And that's why you see India looking at a central bank digital currency. That's why many developing countries, the goal is this concept of digital currency mm -hmm. transfer without a network, because that's what developing nations need. They're challenged with connection and, and their populations are challenged to afford and buy expensive handheld mm -hmm. devices. So it's a big, mm -hmm. big thing for China, financial inclusion. Right. Okay. So financial inclusion, disintermediation. What about the Chinese central bank controlling the monetary and fiscal policies? Are CBDCs going to help or hinder those? Yes, definitely will help the, the PBOC to get a better handle mm -hmm. on monetary policy. But I have to tell you, that's years mm -hmm. away because first you right, have to okay. launch it, then you have to have a decent uptake before you mm -hmm. can start to look at the central bank digital currency and make policy decisions. I think that's a longer goal. More immediate for China, and their head of the PBOC stated this, is that they really need a backup to WeChat and Alipay. Look, mm -hmm. governments, and you know the crypto fans out there get this. They really do. Governments like to control money. And, yeah. and I understand. And I, and you know, I mean, <laughs> if crypto people are laughing at me or with me on this, I get it. China has a very unique situation, but it's important because it's a lesson for stable coins in the West. And the situation is where two companies control 94% of all the mobile payments in the nation. So who controls the money in China? Well, if you're talking about retail money, it's WeChat and Alipay control the money. Now, there's nothing mm -hmm. fundamentally wrong with that, but let's just say it mm -hmm. leaves government with an uncomfortable feeling feeling in their stomach. They're designing a central bank digital currency to be a backup. And that's exactly what they say. This is a backup to these other systems so that we have financial continuity. 
that is the same issue that stable coins will bring to the US and what US and to the West. I think stable coins we're gonna get them. And I love stable coins. I'm all for mm -hmm. a financial system that has CBDC, stable coins, crypto. Mm -hmm. You pick your money, it's your business. But mm -hmm. if we look at the stable coin world and we say, well, stable coins mm -hmm. are enough, then you're gonna get mm -hmm. into this world that we have now with big tech. You've got Google, Apple, mm -hmm. Facebook, you've got a couple companies that control it all. And that's what mm -hmm happen with money in China. Central bank digital currency is important because it will keep stable coins honest and stable coins mm -hmm. are important because they will keep central bank digital currency honest. They're all part of right. our financial future. That makes sense, really. I think the argument of the crypto folks is quite like full libertarianism, right? Big companies are not that great. Big governments print a lot of money, cause a lot of inflation, what have you. So you need something which is completely decentralized, right? So that's the kind of argument for that. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that's it. We'll see how it goes. I love everything. I understand I get a lot of crypto people and they're really mad. They're like, you know, okay, so <laughs> let me let me state this for the crypto folks out there. I get it. Ready? If you are a crypto maximalist, I get that you may not like central yeah. bank digital currency, but I ask you this, even as a maximalist, do you anticipate that the whole world will abandon fiat currency? How long will that take? One year? 10 years? I mean, it's not going to mm -hmm. happen overnight. So in that gap, whether you consider it a decade, five years, whatever, to go to crypto. Should we not have better fiat transfer rails available that do allow for P2P disintermediated payment, which cuts out banks and other rent-seeking organizations? You're just not going to flip the switch and all of a sudden get to a crypto paradise. Sure. This is like a stopgap measure for now until we get there, basically. So that's interesting. I guess very quickly on the topic of CBDCs, disadvantages what's bad about there's, it? Look, there's only one that is worth talking about, and that's privacy. And to anybody right. out there who is concerned about privacy, ready? You should be. Everybody should be concerned about privacy. But listen carefully. Central bank digital currency is software. That's it. You can make it as private as Monero, the privacy coin, if you wanted to, or you could make it as unprivate as Facebook, which is the least private software I can think of in the planet right now. In reality, central bank digital currency will be between these two, okay? You're not going to get a fully decentralized, fully private coin out of a central bank because they want you to pay taxes. And mm -hmm. complete privacy of money means that no one will pay taxes. Complete non-private, complete unanonymous cash transactions, well, mm -hmm. nobody certainly wants to use that. We want privacy and, and some degree of anonymity. So central bank digital currency is is not by definition government spying on you. And that's false. If you love crypto and you acknowledge that we can design a privacy coin like Monero, and I know that Monero is really controversial, but I'm just using it as an example. If you can do that with software, do we not have the human technology and skill to design a central bank digital currency that has appropriate levels of privacy and anonymity? And the answer is yes. Yeah, you can yeah. get there. So please don't tell me, oh, all central bank digital currencies are the state spying on you. They're horrible. No, please try to keep the understanding that yeah. their software, the state and the people in the state all have to agree on what, mm -hmm. what that software looks like. Yeah. And I think even within the crypto maximalist space, privacy is something that we need more innovations on. Like if I've got your wallet address, I literally know all the transactions you've done, right? Which is crazy. You know, that, you know? You know, that's um, sort of, look, I'm 
sorry, I apologize, but I have a real difficulty with this because many people who are partially educated about crypto don't really understand that Mm -hmm. Bitcoin in particular was not built for privacy. It was built for transparency. I mean, that's why you can look at the chain and see what everything happened. So, you know, why do you think the the U.S. government could bust kiddie pornographers? Why do you think they could bust people on the dark web? Why do you think today the U.S. Internal Revenue Service has a special program? It's a special program to recapture unpaid taxes on whale-sized Bitcoin and cryptocurrency transactions. And they have this because with a bit of solid computing, you can figure out who these people are. It's not the easiest thing, but it is certainly doable in an era of big data. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Moving swiftly forward, I think the software platform thing you mentioned brings us quite nicely to the next part I want to uncover with you, which is SWIFT and Russia and China. And I think in the book you write about the CBDCs are going to be a gateway drug not to replace the US dollar, but to replace SWIFT, I believe. So can you tell us firstly, for our listeners who have absolutely zero idea, what is SWIFT? And then how will kind of CBDCs and China's kind of trade relationships affect how it becomes like a different platform of payments all around the world? Sure. With the conflict in the war in Russia and Ukraine right now, we've seen that there are economic sanctions on Russia. And these sanctions include partial Mm -hmm. removal of Russian banks because from what is called the SWIFT system. The SWIFT system is a cash transfer system. It doesn't physically transfer. You don't put money on it and it goes. But it's a messaging Mm -hmm. system telling one bank to move money from one account to another. And it is the international standard for cash transfer. But remember, it's a Mm -hmm. messaging system. It tells one bank to move money from an account in their bank to another bank in another account in their bank. It is not what Bitcoin or what central bank digital currency is, which is when you send the message, the money is attached to the message. Okay. Right, 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 right. So that's the big thing that people have to know. SWIFT is the global standard. If a country, we can look at North Korea, we can look at Iran, we can look at Venezuela, they have all been cut off from the SWIFT system. It puts a hardship on them. And Mm -hmm. some people may say that's good. And other people may say that that's bad. Let's not talk about that now. But the issue is, it is a transfer system. Countries can be blocked from it. And usually the blocks come from the U.S. and the EU, U.S. being the leader. In fact, there are some 8,000 entities that are blocked from using the SWIFT transfer system. So now we have central bank digital currency, which works to buy a cup of coffee. And everybody thinks, oh, it's like Google Pay, it's like Apple Pay, you buy coffee with it. No. The tokenization or digitization of money is about a future where machines pay for things, where 5G networks carry payments. And it's about payments crossing borders simply Mm -hmm. by being transmitted effectively. It's an oversimplification, but effectively by an email. And that's Mm -hmm, fundamentally mm -hmm. different because what it does is it allows governments and potentially companies to who do not agree with sanctions and bans and blocks on SWIFT to actually send money, SWIFT be damned. And that's the reality. I understand that this is controversial. It has two sides to it. One side says sanctions are just and necessary. And another side 
side that says that they are unjust. Now, let me put it to you this way. The first big sanction on SWIFT was Iran in 2012. Prior mm. to that, most of the world thought that SWIFT would never sanction, that it was mm. a sacred organization that was neutral and the flow of money mm. in the world was in fact free and open. Right. Well, not anymore. After 2012, SWIFT became the term that is used and people may find it offensive. They say SWIFT was weaponized, turned into a weapon. Now, whether you believe that or not, fine. But the point is, prior to 2012 and when the, when the SWIFT ban of Iran happened, people were shocked. They said, well, we couldn't imagine that happening. And now economic sanctions are a part of geopolitical strategy around the world. And that CBDC, not just China's, but all CBDCs, because there are a bunch of them out there are four or five of them already, mm -hmm. and there are hundreds of them in planning, will be a way to avoid the SWIFT network and sanctions. And it will be a way to avoid the US dollar. Right. And just to make things clear, so what happens if I'm China, I've got my own CBDC, and I don't know, I'm like Russia, for example, I've got my own central bank currency. Can we transact with each other without using SWIFT? Is that what you're saying, basically? Yes, absolutely. I apologize to my audience if I didn't make it yeah. more clear. But basically, the way that money would flow today. So let's just look at money flowing from, I'm going to use this country randomly, Ghana in Africa. Yeah. So if I want mm -hmm. to buy goods from China, I take the Ghana CD, I believe it's called. Boy, yeah, pretty sure it's the CD. I convert it to US dollars, which is one hop on a foreign exchange network. I then transfer the US mm -hmm. dollars to China, and then I convert the dollars into RMB, and I buy the refrigerator, all right? So right. Okay. what you could potentially do with central bank digital currency is to convert from CD in Ghana directly into RMB and send that RMB directly to China and you're done. So you avoid, right, right. it's immediate and you avoid these transfers. So in the current world we're living in, let's talk Russia and China, what Russia could do would be send an email to China with money, rubles in it. And what China could do is send an email back and say, here's your RMB, spend it how you want. It's an oversimplification, but it brings money transfer to email easy style transfer and nobody knows about it and it's all anonymous. Yeah, I mean, the thing to me is that that's going to be so fundamental systemic shift, right? I mean, just completely throwing away the reliance of US dollar, all the kind of retail banking infrastructure in between that's there. I mean, it's going to change so much stuff just from finance blowing out to kind of politics and trade. It's just so interesting. To yeah, me. yeah. Now look, let me give Satoshi Nakamoto credit. He got it. Mm -hmm. When he talked about peer-to-peer -peer and disintermediation, he got that that was a fundamental change in how we use money on a retail mm -hmm. level. And I do believe he also got that it was a fun, if it's a he or she, who knows who this person is, right? But fundamentally, it is a huge change in how we relate to money, how we perceive money, and we disintermediate. We take all of these people who are like in a line. So that first example, think about all the different banks who have computers that are whirring in the background as the money goes from one place to another, mm. foreign exchange, all these other things. All of that's gone. It's a revolution. For most normal people, it's a good revolution in the sense that it makes payment faster, cheaper, easier. It's good. But from a geopolitical context, it reduces government's ability to control the cash transfer system. So if 
the U.S. can no longer sanction, if the EU can no longer monitor the sanctions for compliance, it's a fundamentally changed world. And that's where we're heading. There's not much yeah. you can do about it. This is technology taking over money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of reminds me of the quote that science or tech advances one funeral at a time. You know? <laughs> So I love it. So, That's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, so whoever the powerhouses you had in a certain systemic structure, it's all going to break down, reshuffle, unbundle, and rebundle again, and it's going to be so different. Yeah, right? but, so and, you know, and that's the important part. You see, look, the, the joke is sort of like burn me once, the joke is on you. Burn me twice, the joke is on me. So once you've been yeah. sanctioned, once you've had companies like China has that are put on the sanction list, you naturally look to technology as a way of avoiding these sanctions, which is why mm -hmm. sanctions are like playing cards. You can only play them maybe once because the second time you go to play it, technology of various types is going to be put in play to avoid these sanctions. So it's a funeral. Also, I think you mentioned this in the book that China is the biggest exporter in the world, right? And you've got the Belt and Road Initiative and all these very hungry, growing economies in Asia and Africa who are doing independent trade with China. You just kind of align them and reshuffle them on the new payment platforms of using CBDCs or whatever. And boom, you've completely subverted the US dollar. Absolutely. Through your trade. And let me yeah. give you yeah. let me give you and listeners one more point mm -hmm. about this. So here's the argument. People don't like to use the RMB today. Why will they mm -hmm. like using the digital RMB tomorrow? It's still an RMB. And that's true. It's important to understand that the digital RMB value is no different than the regular one. Okay, But here's the thing. What China is doing is along with the digital RMB, it's building a digital blockchain-based logistics system that allows mm -hmm. for containers, goods, and commerce to pass more quickly through customs, to have access to digital trade finance, which is cheaper than regular normal trade finance. And this isn't imaginary. This already exists. These blockchain systems for trade and trade finance exist already in Shenzhen and a couple of other ports. When somebody says, hey, do you want to use digital RMB and you are a belt and road country and you say, well, how much does it cost to buy this container of refrigerators from China and you count the cost of transferring money through the normal banking system and the time that it takes. And then you look at digital RMB and you say, that takes 20 minutes. And then somebody says, oh, by the way, if you go digital, you actually get access to this fast track digital logistics system and your refrigerators will clear customs in 24 hours. Which one do you think people are going to use? Yeah. It's not just about, well, what kind of money do you have? Do you have digital money? Money, or do you have regular money? It's what services are bundled together with that money. And in China's case, it is the digital logistics system. And that's going to be a game changer for all, exactly as you said, the Belt and Road countries and the local Asian RCEP nations. So big changes coming. Yeah, that's incredible. Just going back to kind of Satoshi's, and I was thinking about this the other day, the P2P thing that we talk about that this kind of is going to enable 
enabled, CBDC is going to enable. I think it's a very kind of true bred human quality, you know, because if I think about the history of money, previously, you just like gold was gold coins and copper was copper, right? And then you've had this design decision taken by empires just to put like heads of kings and queens on those coins, right? So like, if you're in the Roman Empire, your coins are only valid there versus if you're in another empire, right? And now you're almost kind of going back to that point where, you know, it's P2P again, between empires, between whoever, wherever you live, you can literally exchange, exchange value, right? Which is very fascinating to me, basically. Yeah, it is fascinating because it personalizes payment. We have yeah, an impersonalized exactly. payment system where if I want to pay you, I have all of these different systems that I have to go through. To be practical, there will be systems that the digital currency will travel through, specialized wallets, and the, but basically yeah. I can now have a personalized payment relationship with you. I put in, and the way it works now in China, I just put in the phone number, your phone number, bang, I can send you the money and I don't have anybody else. And that essentially is how international trade will be conducted. And it's tremendously powerful. And if I'm a Western kind of policymaker, obviously these economic sanctions are a great tool, obviously, but I almost feel like there's a danger in overusing it, you know, because it would just kind of forced these kind of quote unquote rogue countries to switch to alternative payment rails, right? I think that's where we're kind of structurally going towards with kind of CBDCs as well. Oh, right? Absolutely. Look, there's a debate mm. right now. And you look, there's, there's lots of papers on this. The real mm -hmm. question is the expulsion from SWIFT turns out after in-depth analysis of Iran, in-depth analysis of North Korea, it turns out that it's not the expulsion from SWIFT that gets the gains that in this case, the US government wants to achieve. It turns out it's mm -hmm. the policy decisions. Overusing sanctions is a big, big problem. And there is an entire school that says, hey, you should not be using these sanctions so much. They are a blunt force trauma instrument. They affect the poor. They affect the entire nation and people who have had nothing to do. Yeah. And you say, well, yeah. we don't like Iran. Iran's a bad country. Let me give you an example. During COVID, yeah. Iran requested from the U.S. government to be able to buy medical supplies from the West. And the U.S. government said, no, we will deny you that privilege. And the EU mm -hmm. jumped in and they have a small emergency cash transfer system. And they said, look, we'll allow you to buy medical supplies from the EU so people don't die. And, you know, you can't make that up. And whether you like Iran or not, you don't really want people dying because of lack of access to medical supplies because they're cut off from SWIFT. That's not a nice thing to think about, but this is a real example. And this is what Russia is going to have. Yeah, I've already seen the kind of huge lines in front of ATMs in Russia, right? And I speak to some of my friends there and they're getting affected. Like, So there's a local population who are kind of affected. So, so you know, yeah. the policy people who are real experts, uh, I focus on digital currency, but the real experts at this yeah. are saying, look, the expulsion from SWIFT. And in Russia's case, it is not an expulsion. It is only a partial. The, the actual yeah. gas is still flowing into Europe and about five to 700 million a day is still being transferred mm. to Russia for payment for gas and oil. So yeah. it's not a full SWIFT blackout. 
But the point is, these cutoff from SWIFT makes it so that many ordinary people are injured and are harmed. The better use is policy and other specific technology and other sanctions or blocks that are more valuable in trying to have an impact on yeah. countries that are, quote, not following the rules. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. So kind of concluding, and I've got two more questions here. We've talked about some great things, right? You know, like the financial system going to change. There's like new payment rails coming. CBDCs are great. Tell me, when can we expect this? How are the trials going? When is this going to happen? Great question. And that's really important. First of all, China's central bank digital currency is on trial. It is only on trial in 12 of the cities in China and a couple of regions. And there's another four or five second tier cities coming on in the next month or so. So it's not fully launched. And that's important. And the reason why that's important is I'm already seeing articles saying China's central bank digital currency is failing. <laughs> and I'm like, how can it fail? It's not even out yet. <laughs> you know. And the usage numbers are genuinely low. And the reason is because when in Shanghai, there are not many stores where it's actually accepted yet, just a few. So if I have it and I want to use it, I can't use it at my coffee shop and I can't use it at my supermarket. In my case, that's true. Right. So we would expect that by next year, this time, I think there'll be willing Willing, ready and willing to go live. There is no rush for China to go live because the eyes of the world are focused on China. They know right. that everybody is waiting. And if they make a mistake, they're going to be criticized severely. So there's no rush for China. They've got a long head. They've got a, a long mm. lead on every all the other industrialized nations and they'll launch it fully when they want to. But I'm thinking next year this time. Okay, that's pretty cool. I think these are trials, right? So which means that they might learn, there might be lessons, they might iterate on the design decisions that we just talked about. Some, Absolutely. Right? They're, they're going to be tweaking mm. and making the system work better throughout that year. Mm -hmm. And then after it's launched domestically, we're already seeing some trials for use between Hong Kong, which is technically international use between the Hong Kong dollar mm. and uh, the mainland. But after it launches domestically, you'll have to wait a while before it goes internationally. Now, one thing that's really important for people to understand, this is a central bank digital currency, which means that when it goes international, that means that mm. Central Bank of China makes an agreement with the Central Bank of Country X for the use in that country. It doesn't mean that suddenly, like Bitcoin, everybody internationally can suddenly start using China's digital yuan. It is has to be approved from one central bank to the other central bank yeah. that it be used. And that's- As a legal tender. Yeah, and that's the important that part. Yeah, cool. That makes sense, really. I'm looking forward to it. My last question is a bit more broader in terms of just kind of zooming out of fintech a little bit. So being in the West, there's like a genuine feeling that, okay, China in the 80s with Deng Xiaoping, it was kind of a lot of free market policies opening up. And now with Xi, it, it seems to be kind of closing again, a lot of clamp down on tech companies. Is that true? Like what's happening? Because you're there. Can you tell us well, kind of the general broad picture of, of well, China? Well, let me talk about I don't want to actually give you the broad picture. What I want to talk about is the yeah. tech picture. And awesome. for the tech industry, this is so, so important. There is a sensation that China is breaking tech. It's breaking the mm -hmm. industry. And in fact, what China is doing is it's pursuing innovation. What China mm -hmm. did was to learn from the US where we have GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, the GAFA company. 
things. What big tech has done in the West is not to be particularly innovative. Why is TikTok, a Chinese app, the number one app in the West right now? It's because it's innovative, right? And big tech is great in the West. It's done some wonderful things. However, China is looking at that and they're saying, if we want to remain innovative, we have to do two things. And that is to curb the excesses of big tech in China. And we have to foster small companies who are hyper innovative. So what you see is antitrust. What you see is China looking at big tech tech and saying, hey, you do some things really well and you do some things that are basically not fair. It's not fair mm -hmm. that a delivery company uses its algorithm to pay a guy who delivers stuff on a scooter less money. Is that good use of tech or is that bad use? And most people would say, well, that's a bad use of tech. And that's exactly what happens. Tech says, well, we use algorithms to control our system and not those algorithms are not always used for the best benefit of humanity. And most people would agree with that mm -hmm. if they look at Google or if they look at Meituan and, or DD, which are Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. That's a universal problem with big tech. China is fundamentally managing that problem. And it's doing it with laws on artificial intelligence and on algorithms and on data privacy that when they were first launched, you could read articles saying this is a nightmare. But then like mm -hmm. within a month, you saw tech journals starting to say, hey, these are the world's first laws on artificial intelligence. And we in Europe and the United States need to learn from them. <laughs> And that's what you see now. And when you see privacy laws in China, you see the EU and you see the US saying, hey, these laws clearly are not perfect for EU or US, but there are bits and pieces mm -hmm. that we need to learn from and perhaps copy. So China is a leader in tech regulation now. It really has to be commended for this. It's doing a lot of good in this area. The important thing for people to understand is China is not breaking the internet. China is not breaking tech. China is bringing more innovation in tech so that it can pursue this high-tech future at an even faster rate than it has today. And that's very interesting. And I think, I mean, we'll see in the next few years how eventually things pan out. I think as it goes, basically, the difference between a madman and a genius is only on hindsight. You can understand that, right? <laughs> so we'll see how that kind of policy plays you know, in the West versus the East in the next few years. But yeah, that definitely makes sense. One very last question I have is that in terms of emerging markets, if I'm an emerging market person living in the emerging markets, say in Bangladesh, uh, I'm a policymaker in the Bangladeshi government or the Pakistani government, what should I think about when it comes to like digital currencies and CBDCs? Should I wait for China to come up and then legal tenderize the CBDC? So what advice would you have for those kind of people, policymakers in emerging markets when it comes to fintech? The most important important question that you asked tonight. If we look at the risk reward spectrum of CBDC and you look at an advanced nation like the United States where the dollar is dominant, you see risk and some reward, but not a lot because the US dollar is already dominant. dominant. Yeah. Hyper dominant. <laughs> but when you go to a developing nation, the risk reward is all on the reward side. And let me explain. That's why you've got El Salvador, right? Uh, well, <laughs> and all that's a, yeah, that's yeah. a bit, that's a Bitcoin, but 
you've got Nigeria Shit. with the Enira. You've got Bahamas with the Sand Dollar. You've got the Eastern Caribbean with uh, Dcash. And we've got Jamaica coming out with its new digital currency. For a developing no nation, idea. the yeah. rewards for financial inclusion far outstrip any risk, provided they have a competent builder of their digital currency. And hmm. that's really the key. I can't say enough. The opportunities for inclusion. China should be the model. Look at what China, mm. WeChat, and Alipay did. Look at what M-Pesa did for Kenya. There is a mm. real direct relation between financial inclusion and increases in GDP. Real. Yeah. Go to the, go Excellent. to the, you know, go and look. Research papers about this stuff. So digital payment through CBDC, universal payment, the ability to include more of your population is a primary policy consideration for a developing nation and a big reason why developing nations should pursue digital currency. No question about it. Brilliant. I think we'll leave it at that. Rich, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And yeah, looking forward to seeing how these innovations play out. And maybe we'll have you again soon once it becomes the hyper-dominant and replaces the SWIFT. We'll, <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yeah. I, I, I can't wait. I Look, I love talking to you and I look <laughs> forward to being back here again. And I'd like to tell everyone <laughs> that you can reach out to me if you enjoyed this. Please reach out to me on either uh, LinkedIn where I write about digital currency every day and, of course, on Twitter. And I would absolutely love to hear from you. And I have to say this because I'm an author. My book, Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution, is on Amazon, Apple, and a bunch of other places that I can never remember. But I'd love it if you'd take a look. So thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Lai. I will link it to the show notes as well. Thank you very much, Rich, and I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much, Wahid. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.